Welcome to the Yoga Nook podcast. Today I'm speaking with Peter Thompson, a senior Australian Iyengar yoga teacher who ran the Glebe Yoga School for many years and now travels Australia, Asia and America teaching workshops and teacher training. Peter was my first teacher and a great inspiration to me. I hope you enjoy hearing him talk about yoga as a way of understanding life and as a methodology of practice. Welcome, Peter. Can you tell us how you got started in Iyengar yoga? I probably should start by saying how I got started in yoga. It was a, a stage in my life when I was a bit caught between that side of me that was that was very physical, that had always played a lot of sport. Sport was very much my way of understanding things. It was very much my social world. It was very much my way of functioning. Which um, sports did you play? Just about anything that involved a ball that moved. Particularly important later was golf because I'd been a teenage golfer and so I'd been subject to that discipline of regular practice and a developmental process that, and the development of a skill through practice, which is, is very much built into the development of a golfer. How much did you practice as a child? Particularly during the summers, I would be practicing daily, probably two hours a day. Were you a competitive golfer at that stage? To some degree. But there was a, a bit of a, a conflict between essentially that part of me that just wanted to be a professional golfer and um, that part of me that was thinking in terms of a career and an academic life. And so I ended up with a career in, as an economist and that was very much at the expense of that side of me that I was more comfortable with. So I think the split between the two sort of came to a head in my late 20s. And it was at that point that um, a friend took me to a yoga class and I immediately saw the potential in what I was doing to resolve the, the polarity between that side of me that was pursuing a, a career based on academic study and um, that part of me that understood things through you know, a body-based discipline. I mean, I, I think I saw that pretty much immediately, like within the first 10 minutes of a class. And I, I knew immediately that this was something that I'd been looking for. What I didn't really understand was how much it had to say about both of those things, those opposites that I was grappling with, how much it said about the world of, uh, of disciplines, physical disciplines such as golf, sport in general, but also how much it, it said about my study as an economist. And it was many years later before I understood that I, that I understood economics much better from having done yoga. I wouldn't say more than academic study of economics, but it certainly showed up that study in a very, very different and a very productive light. So, Can you say more about that? Like, how did it do that? Or what did it show up? I think um, economics is really a, a study around values and around, um, rather than absolutes, it's around values that, that are counterbalanced against each other. Uh, so in a sense, competing, but also complementary values and an attempt to, to meet those values through um, an understanding 
rather than, which is a whole system understanding, rather than, you know, a triumph of one thing over another. So it's really around a balance in a, in a dynamic system, and so is yoga. And who was the teacher? What style of yoga was that? I first was exposed to yoga through a, a friend who was an Iyengar teacher, and that was in the UK in about 1978. I then spent two years in Japan, 79, 1980, and I had a Japanese teacher uh, who was not my anger teacher, but was very influenced by Mr. Anger's teaching, and particularly by Light on Yoga. I, w I, didn't, I wasn't exposed directly to anger yoga until late 1980. And how did that happen? I actually had gone to Japan, really, on my way to India. I wanted to teach English in Japan and earn some money to sustain me while I, I was in India, but I, I became um, involved with this Japanese teacher and really I didn't emerge from that for two years. So I had a decision then when I was going to stay on in Japan or whether I was going to go back to Australia and I didn't see that uh, that was an easy decision and that if I, w I was going to have to face leaving Japan at some point. So uh, I decided it was time to go back to Australia and if it was time to go back to Australia I wanted to go back to Australia via India which was the original plan. So I went directly to India and studied at the Institute late 1980. And then when I came back to Australia after that, I started teaching in Sydney. And can you describe your first encounter with Mr Iyengar? My first encounter with Mr Iyengar was um, the morning after I arrived in Pune. I was booked into classes and my first class was a Saturday morning class, a seven o'clock class, and I was pretty excited. So I got there about 5.30 and the hall was in darkness. So I started practicing in the darkened hall and and then I became aware that there was somebody else practicing in the room not that far away and I could hear their breathing and and then as the as dawn broke and you know light started to come into the room, I realized that the person I was practicing with was Mr. Anger and he was doing the balances. That must have been an amazing thing to see. Well, I I didn't feel like I wanted to just, having sort of um, intruded in on his practice, I didn't feel like I wanted to just stand there and watch. So I kept doing my practice. It was some years later before I actually was able to observe him doing that kind of practice. But um, it was certainly quite an introduction. Did he say anything to you at that point? No, but he he didn't say anything to me, but he didn't tell me to get out of the room either which was fairly interesting. And he gave me no kind of communication or message that I was somehow intruding in on his space, for which I was very grateful. And then you had your first class with him, and what was that like? I didn't have a class with him. Um, I think that first class that morning was with Shah. And of course, at that time, and for many years thereafter, the classes at the Institute were taught by Gita Prashant and, and also Shah. My generation were raised really on Gita and Prashant Iyengar's teaching. So Mr Iyengar would teach the intensives but not the classes? At no, the he was also, at that point, Gita was the one who would teach the intensives. And many of us, particularly from Australia, from say 1983, uh, were going to Pune on a yearly basis to do intensives with Gita. And um, that was so throughout the 80s. Uh, I did my first intensive with Mr. Anger 
in at the end of 1990. So was that the first time you were taught by him? Directly. I mean, you'd be you'd be practicing in the hall, and um, uh, and he would be there also. You know, he would be. You knew him, and he he would have some knowing of you, but. As a direct student, that didn't happen until 1990 for me. And what was that like? My first intensive with Mr Anger was the backbed intensive at the end of 1990. And um, that was uh, a revelation. And really, uh, it set me off on a course, which is like a trail that I've been following ever since and um, is really fundamental to how I approach practice and how I approach teaching and what I think is important. So my yoga values, um, much of that is really a, a direct path that can be traced back to that first intensive, the backbend intensive, with Mr. Anger in 1990. Did you start practising soon after you did your first yoga class? Uh, not after my first yoga class, but by the time I was in Japan in 1979, I was doing a class or practising daily. How soon after you started practicing did you start teaching? I started teaching when I came back to Australia, so let's say that's after two years of intensive practice. I think very much at that time we learnt on our feet. And we learnt particularly from the experience of going to Pune and observing the Angus teach and but the actual teaching skill was very much developed in the experience of teaching. What prompted you to start teaching? Well, I knew that I'd found something that was very important to me and that if I wanted to do full justice to it, that I needed to be fully immersed in it. And and to be fully immersed in it, I it meant really that there needed to be a single pursuit rather than to be uh, divided between different activities. So... I knew then that I, if I wanted to immerse myself in this, I also needed to teach it. And that really the practice and the teaching were complementary to each other. That not always being the case. In some ways, teaching at times could be a difficult thing for your practice to support. But in a longer term sense, I felt and I still do feel that they're essentially complementary. And teaching can be difficult for your practice to support? Energetically, um, teaching is very demanding and um, it's demanding time-wise and, um, and it's also demanding in terms of the investment that you need to make to get a class to really lift. And teaching can be difficult, but uh, so life can also be difficult and... There are also people who are, you know, they're also running careers or they're running families and they have those responsibilities and meanwhile at the same time they're maintaining a practice and that's not easy either. I don't think practice is anywhere you could really look at practice as easy but I felt right from the beginning that in terms of what was important to me, practice was easier compared to the alternatives. And then when you started to train teachers, what made you start to train teachers? I think training teachers was was just an extension of the teaching process. I think really in some ways teaching is an extension of practice. I think training teachers is, is an extension of teaching in that there'll be, there'll be 
students who are keen, who, who are picking up some passion for it, and what are they going to do with that passion? Just as I had my desire to teach, they have their desire to teach, and, and that seems to me to be a natural extension of having a love for the practice. So really, then it's the teacher's responsibility, really, to support the student in pursuing that passion. And you did that. You certainly did that well. At Glebe Yoga School, we always had very fair working conditions that made it possible to teach and survive without having to do another job on top of it. Well, I hope so. I mean, I think, you know, we, we it's, it's not like we launched into a well-trodden career path. We very much were finding ourselves in a situation and trying to understand it and to learn from it. And so we learned as we went along. There were things that probably I was doing then that I perhaps wouldn't do now. I can't think of particulars, but I think uh, definitely we learnt on our feet, which is, I, I, uh, I feel there are advantages to that also because it was also very free and we could be, uh, we could experiment and, and we could be, expansive in our thinking and rather than being enrolled into a pathway with very fixed parameters. And I think, to my mind, this is one of the strengths of Australian yoga amongst in my peer group is that um, we had to work it out for ourselves. We had Puna as a model, but there are, there are ways in which that um, was directly relevant to our situation, but in other ways it was not. And we had to find our own answers to the problems that, that we faced and the problems that our students would present to us and the problems that training students would present. Do you think there is something in common that the first generation of Iyengar, of Australian Iyengar yoga teachers, do they have any anything in common? I think um, I think we had a lot in common. I think I think strong at that time was an understanding of the importance of practice and of learning from practice. And a respect also for the diversity that learning from practice would provide. A real respect for the importance of the relationship with Pune and studying in Pune. And Pune is kind of like the foundation to our practice. There are also, no doubt, things that we did differently. But at that time, I think uh, our collegial strength was very strong. And... I think that has supported us right through to the present day and I think it's still very much distinctive of Australian senior teaching culture that it's inclusive rather than divisive. And so that's a foundation for the, for the Iyengar teachers, you know, the next generations who come along as well? I think it's certainly, it's our intention and our aim collectively. We have a sense of, I think, of the collective and of the, you know, the collegial importance of the collective, the collective, um, the collective responsibility and the collective response. And I think that's been particularly strong in Australia. And I think by comparison with other communities internationally, often it would seem that in, in other cultures, it's really grown out of particular individuals in particular countries rather than the very strong sense we had in Australia of it being a leadership group and a, a, a responsibility that was shared between all of us. 
and so therefore also we needed to arrive at you know, shared decision-making, collective decision-making, collective responsibility, collective leadership. I'm hoping, I think we all of us would like that to be an important part of our legacy to generations after us. And then the generations that came after you, they don't have the same degree of freedom because we, you know, we go through the assessment process and do you think that will affect? I think it's, in, it's probably inevitable that there is some effect. I think just by virtue of um, you know, increasing infrastructure and a formalisation of the process, naturally to some extent it gets to be more constricted or structured at least. I think our intention as senior teachers, though, is not to create something which is constricted, but to create the same sort of conditions that we grew up under. Because we understand, we value that process, and that's our understanding, and that's kind of like what I think we would really want our transmission to be. And that is, can you say what that is? I think that's, it's really a practice-based or referenced understanding which um, is inclusive of um, diversity, that sees its, its sees diversity not as a problem but as a source of strength, uh, and that sees a responsibility to be inclusive not just of you know younger teachers who are our direct trainees, but also the trainees of other teachers. So that you know we're trying to build a community rather than a a regime. So a diversity even in the way that you understand what yoga is and approach yoga? I don't know that we're trying to create a diversity in terms of an understanding because you understand yoga the way you understand it and and that being your understanding, that's also your commitment. But we do at the same time recognise that we're, we're, we're in a community and that our particular understanding might not be the particular understanding of our colleagues and that just as we have a right, they also have a right. We're, 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 we're trying to work with, within a structure that allows um, that flexibility rather than that which seeks to, to define and divide. Just changing the topic slightly. So you've always you've maintained your passion for golf and you've always continued to play golf while you do the yoga practice. What do you see similarities in the two? Well, it's not true that I've always managed to play golf. <laughs> um, because I think really from the time I embarked on, on a yoga course, for probably 20 years after that, I didn't touch a golf club. Oh, right. That doesn't mean to say I didn't stop thinking about it. So it was probably more around about the middle 90s that I started to think, well, really, I, this is obviously important to me. I, I should pick up a golf club again. But... A lot of what then intrigued me was the the relationship between the structures that I felt were important yogically and their application to the structures important in the development of a golf swing. Did you notice a lot of difference in your golf swing after 20 years of yoga? I think it was more a question of, um, of approach because golf is also like a discipline and it doesn't just change overnight. It, it, you put structures in place and, um, and then the changes come through incrementally and gradually over time. It was more in the way that I, I thought about it, the way it was constructed in my mind and 
the importance particularly of um, understanding the importance of the relationship between foundation and expression. And in, so in golfing terms, how you place your feet and then how the swing... Basically, in, 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 in golf terms, the, the variables are your, your grip, your posture and uh, your stance or setup. Really, in terms of in that world, I'm trying to set up a, a setup, including a, a grip, that is then able to flow without, without any kind of conceptual interference, which is pretty much the same way that I see yoga asana. So similar to the the Zen and the art of archery. I think that I think really once you start to get into the world of disciplines, then you're dealing with um, universals. So what applies in one discipline will apply in another. Part of the the value I think in in yoga is that it gives us ways of accessing universals that apply to to other disciplines, but also to all aspects of our life, and that's what makes yoga so meaningful and so potent, so important, uh, because it helps us to understand not just the yoga situation, but other situations, including our human situations and our interactive situations. So it's, it's the way, I think it's the way in which yoga, to me at least anyway, it was very strongly that I, I wanted to understand. I want to understand my life. I want to understand situations. I want to understand what was going on. And yoga gave me a way of understanding. And, and if it wasn't giving me that way of understanding, I wouldn't have made the sacrifices that I made to support it. It was seeing its relevance to life that made the sacrifices worth making. And what do you think of the application of yoga in sport and the place of Iyengar yoga in that? I think it's, it's, you know, it's a difficult question. Um, I think... I'm not really of the view that sees Iyengar yoga as something different to, to, to yoga. So to me, it's a question of the, what it is, the relevance of yoga to a sporting activity. A sporting activity, is, to my mind, is just another discipline in the same way that yoga is a discipline. Um, so that understanding you're talking about, yoga helps you cultivate that understanding that you then apply to whatever you do in your life, whether it's your golf or your making decisions about life. Is that what you're saying? I am. So I think it, it applies then to any situation, and so it applies to any sporting activity. And I think, just as I think that it's, it's very relevant to the disciplines that I've been immersed in, I see its relevance constantly into the sporting domain, of course, because that's a strong interest of mine, but not. I also see it as relevant to business, for example. And how can we... Get people to see that. It's how do you get your students to see that? I don't think there's any there's a shortcut to that. I think just as in relation to your students, you've got to be an effective teacher. So you have to have the skills to to be able to be effective. And those skills don't don't grow on trees. I mean, you've got to develop them. It's a craft, and it's not an overnight process. I think uh, as you with as you persevere as a teacher, I think. You know, if your methodology is sound, I think you do get better. I guess part of the irony is that by the time you get to be pretty good, you might not be capable of doing it anymore. <laughs> but I think it is, it is a craft. And so I think, which is why in the context of disciplines like this, uh, experience and time and inevitably therefore age 
Well, I often think about that myself because I'm working on it. But then I remember that when I first encountered you, you were a great teacher then. Well, I don't want to be, you know, to be, what is it, scratching my own back, what's the expression? I think I'm a better teacher now than I was then. And if, 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 and I think, how, how could it be otherwise? And if it were not, if you're getting worse, then uh, there's something in that, that structure that is dysfunctional. Something's going wrong. In your own structure? In your own structure. If you're getting worse, the more you teach. And the more you practice, you're getting worse. The more you teach, you're getting worse. Time to think of a career change. Yes, it's probably too late. <laughs> so I, I, um, I don't think there's any way around it. You've, you've got to earn your stripes, I think. And I think this is also a problem, I think, for a younger generation who are under some pressure to, to sort of like, you know, leave school and next thing become famous. And... And, you know, they should already have achieved something at an age which in yoga terms it would be ridiculous. And it's difficult, I think, for that generation to see what their development might mean 10 years down the track, what it might mean 20 years down the track, what it might mean 30 years down the track, and being willing to hold the course while their, their peers may be in the same discipline or in other disciplines, uh, getting recognition and, you know, the, the trappings of success. That's right. And because there's more and more the pressure around that in terms of, you know, being able to make enough money to buy a house and all those kinds of things, those pressures are much greater now than they were 30 years ago. The time pressures is also, you know. I think that's true, and um, which is, um, you know, a, a cultural statement of some significance because um, you know in terms of particularly the time pressures uh, you could argue that the the era of the practitioner I well maybe the practitioner but if you take even you know in the Indian context for example you know the musician the classical musician or the classical dancer or the the actor well those structures in Indian culture still be there in 20 years time, 30 years time. What, what's, the, what's the parallel to that in Australian culture? For example, today we saw Steve Waugh, a cricketer, classical cricket. What's going to happen to classical tr cricket in this culture because of the time responsibilities that are involved in the development of technique to that degree of, of sophistication? So and you I, think the era of the practitioner or the person who's going to devote hours and hours and hours to developing a skill, that era might be over? Is that what you're saying? I don't know that it's... I wouldn't jump to saying it's over, but I, I, I would wonder what's going on now. And if you take it into you know, different, different cultures, for example, um, you know, the, the changes that are happening in Burma at the moment where there's a political change, but immediately then the Burmese are trying to catch up with the values of the world around them. And they're, they're doing so, including like, the embrace of, of Western education systems and Western values, often at the expense of, for example, their meditative traditions. 
so that, you know, in that context, people might be going to Buddhist monasteries and being taught academic Buddhism as opposed to the practice of meditation. How do you see the role of intuition in yoga practice and teaching? Do well, you think that practicing yoga develops your intuition? I think it depends on how you practice. Well, I, I, I could probably just change that. I think, I think the practice of yoga is as, as the yoga wants us to practice. I think it definitely develops an intuition. Intuition really, to me, is um, based on our receptivity to input. So that would have applications in everything else as well, including sport and... Yes, I think it's a sensitization process, uh, a development of sensibilities. And I think yoga in its, you know, its elemental form is really cultivating heightened awareness and you know, well-honed and well-developed sensibilities. And the expression of that people might label as intuition. I don't think intuition is anything magical. I think intuition is just being able to to receive and respond to the stimuli that we're constantly exposed to. We may be exposed to it, but we might not be receptive to it. Practice makes us receptive to what's in our environment. Because it fine-tunes us? Because it fine-tunes us. So, you know, in terms of intuition or in relation to practice, it's, it's not just that, you know, we are receptive. There also needs to be some order, some cohesion. And I think practice structures the way in which we process the input that is available to us so that we process that which is immediately important and we're in direct relationship with experience and experience is able to form us without our interference. The danger being that that we don't just end up constructing you know, like ourselves as God in our own in our own likeness. In other, in other words, that it's not just input. It's because the input can be the input that we like, and the and rejecting the input that we don't like, and so we may be selective. I think important part of the practice is it trains us to be non-selective, to receive the stimulation and respond to the stimulation that's there in the way that it's presenting to us. So I think that's it's an important part of the training that yoga is, the training that asana is, is the way that it orders the input that we're exposing ourselves to. So I'm wondering whether that's too obscure. It's a little bit obscure. The order, so this relates to the method. You often talk in classes about the importance of having a method to your practice. And uh, so this is... What you're talking about now is it the the order? Well, I think order and the... order and method are really go hand in hand. Can you order is really the the sequencing of mind, the sequencing of knowing in an asana, and aligning that sequencing with the sequencing that the asana demands of us. So it's our alignment with the asana rather than our separation from it. Well, any, any asana is going to have a place from which its construction begins. And so our job then in constructing the asana is to follow the order of construction 
that the asana wants us to follow. If you're in Tadasana, for example, you're going to start from your feet. And more particularly even, then there'll be a particular place in the feet that you start from. As a practitioner, a question you've got to work out is where is that? And w would there always be one point what you start from or could that starting point if you're vary? In, if you're in Tadasana, you're on two feet, so you have two points. If if you're in Adhamokashwanasana, for example, you have hands and feet. Potentially, you have four points, four starting points. Although you can work with the asana in different ways, so you could work so that you're starting with your hands or you're starting with your feet. You could also be experimenting with an understanding of the right side of the body, for example, in which case you're going to be working with a hand and a foot. But in any asana, there is always going to be a point or a place of commencement, one or, or more, or uh, there are examples of asanas, for example, which change according to the, the formatting of the asana. If you take something like Hanumanasana, uh, you can start Hanumanasana, you can be working Hanumanasana, for example, off the leg which is extending forward. Uh, that's going to have a particular starting point to it. You can be doing Hanumanasana off the leg that's extending back. One is a forward bend, one is a back bend. But you can be taking the same basic structure, the structure of Hanumanasana, and then you can turn it, for example, into Uttita Hastaparangustasana with a leg up the wall. And then, again, you might be working off the leg that's up the wall, or you can be working off the, the leg, leg that's on the floor. It's still basically the same format as the Hanumanasana, but if you take the whole thing and then turn it around, and convert that, say, into Ekaparashasasana, where you're starting from your head, which is kind of the only place that you really can start from. So it's going spine, head, spine, and then legs. Then you might again work that off the extended leg or the lowered leg. Head, spine, extended leg to the lowered leg, or head, spine, the lowered leg, the extended leg. I think the important thing that there is not so much that what is the correct format but or the correct sequencing, but an understanding that any asana, all asanas, have a sequencing to them, a mental sequencing, a way, of, a way in which we process the asana and respond to it. Starting from the ground up or starting from the foundation up or contact with the outside world. It's going to be, usually it's the ground, but it might also be a wall or... Perhaps if you're using a prop, it might be, for example, a chair. Essentially, in shorthand form, it's wound up from the ground up. Say when you're placing your hand down to do a handstand, would you always have to start at the base of the index finger and then follow through from there? Or are there different starting points you could have in the hand to follow the... I think um, if you take that example, and as much as I hate to say always, I think, yes, there's an always, and... There's really only one one point from which that the hand can start, and really that point is where the application of action or pressing of the hand into the floor. When you press the hand into the floor, where is that point where the action of pressing rebounds back into your system? So you're not losing. If you if you go to any other point in the hand and you press, then it's it's it becomes, rather than an action, it becomes weight. And then in the weight, there is something falling. And 
rather than the energy coming back to you, the energy is being spent. Once the energy is being spent, then you're trying to lift yourself up against something which doesn't support you. The lifting, the lifting causes a, a contraction in the body, but also a mental contraction. And getting back to that question of intuition, really what you're looking for is something that supports you so that you're free to express yourself, rather than that you're trying to hold and to save yourself from something which is basically dysfunctional. Can you talk about asana as energetic structure? Well, I think, I think asana is not just a shape. And this is part of the importance of, I think, Mr. Anger's work in the backbend intensive was that he, he really started off that intensive by invoking the image of the dome shape. And uh, the dome shape is not just a shape, um, but as an energetic shape. Something can have a shape to it. But it doesn't mean that it, it has an energetic shape to it. And just if you take, for example, you know, a cardboard box, it has a shape to it, but does it have an energetic shape to it? To have an energetic shape, there, has to, there needs to be a, a dynamic quality to it, a springiness to it, a shape which is internally supported, particularly supported by what has gone before it in terms of its order or its method of construction. So also what has gone, what supports it from underneath. So the dome, the dome shape is an image of that, of something which isn't, is supported from within itself. I think shape is, it's not just a, it's not like a damp shape. It's not like damp cardboard. It has to have a springiness and a vitality to it. And that springiness reflects the investment of mind or mental energy in the construction of that shape. Asana without mind is... To you know, to a reasonably experienced eye, is shapeless, and and has no vitality to it. In that sense, is quite sad. I don't think you can say, for example, that trikonasana is just a shape. Trikonasana is a dynamic. Once you start to see asana as dynamic structures, uh, then you're looking at them in terms of how effective they are in their internal vitality, and also just that this is where an asana is different to a posture. We can call something a posture, but there's something about a posture which is static. An asana is not static. It's a living, breathing, organic, vital energy. And then the question from a practitioner's point of view is how do you go about the construction of that energetic structure? And, and how effective have you been with that? And further to that, I would say that with an energetic structure, really you're looking to avoid the loss of energy. So the plugging of leaks, which is the action of restraint in relation to your, your, your action. So that what you end up with is um, a structure which has an essential uh, unity to it, a oneness to it. And the expression of the energy is the expression which the asana demands of us. It's not that we make uh, an individual contract with the asana, I'm just going to have my expression here or there or some other place that's personally convenient what is it what is the expression that the asana wants us to pursue and to affect so the asana is an archetype well, i think you can talk about asanas as archetypes if that's your language yes so it's something to something to aspire to or something to i i think one of the things that was very important to mr anger was sincerity i think really if you participate in the practice, if you invest yourself in the practice with sincerity, if you're wholehearted 
in your investment in the practice. The practice, practice itself carries you forward. I think uh, there's no even no question of aspiration. Just the investment of the practice itself gets the wheel turning and that wheel itself takes you forward to an expression. I think, I think, was, I think those qualities, the sincerity and also qualities of fidelity, wholeheartedness, constancy, these ingredients brought to bear in relation to what we're doing in the asana itself are our best chance of success. And we don't really need to worry about the success of what it is that we're doing. It all arises out of how we present and invest ourselves in what it is that we're doing. So practice, if we practice, is that enough? Or it depends how you practice? I think it's a question of how you practice. Really, I think... Uh, method and particularly order is uh, a problem-solving structure which has us looking at things in terms of cause and effect. That being the case it helps us to identify where the shortcoming lies and what it is that needs our attention, what it is that we're missing. So if you're looking at it from that point of view, an asana for its dynamic needs mental application. What conditions the mental application? So it's not just a question of we practice, the question is how is the mind behind the practice? If the mind behind the practice is coming up against some obstruction, for example, if we're, and I find this, you know, this occurs in students a lot, that their sense of their capacity is somewhat compromised. So they're approaching the practice, they want something from the practice, but at the same time, they feel that there's no real point in them investing themselves because, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not capable. They don't have what it takes. So then from a teaching point of view, it's not just a question of telling them you should practice more. It's how can you get behind them in the development of their sense of themselves? And how can you use the practice to actually reinforce that thing which is missing or compromised or undeveloped? For example, in that sense, you know, headstand, Chosasana Savangasana practice can be a very, very strong element in rebuilding a psyche that is struggling with a sense of its own unworthiness. So then it becomes a question from a teaching point of view of understanding something about the tools that an asana practice provides, both for the practitioner and also for the teacher. I think, in the same token, you can practice headstand, shoulder stand until hell freezes over, unless there's a, a mind which is seeking to understand. Or, in the language of that everybody's using, uh, if you're doing it mindfully. Yes, well, part of that problem is that the language is... Uh, everyone uses it, and in the way that they use it, it means all sorts of different things. But um, I think if we say, if, if there's an investigative or a consciousness or an awareness brought to bear, then we're putting ourselves in, in a place where practice can really teach us. And if it, if it can teach us, if we're presenting so that it can teach us, eventually we're going to find in our practice what it is that we're looking for and what it is that we need. And how do we verify it? Verification is really around understanding the fruits of action. There are qualities or attributes that, that mental investment in an asana engenders in us. Qualities around clarity, response, responsiveness in the tissue, Lightness, buoyancy, support, coherence, cohesiveness. We can feel 
in what we're doing that, yes, this is making sense. And also internal communication, importantly, which is an aspect of integration. So in method, we can feel how one thing leads to another. So if we press here, it takes us on to our next step. And there's a clear relationship between the, the next step and the step that we've already taken. Vetting says, hang on a second, something's gone wrong here. Let me retrace my steps. Because if I'm having this problem, for example, in my feet, in Shursasana, where has that problem started from? It's no good just fixing the feet or fixing the legs if there's a problem underneath it. Because if we do that, then we're just band-aiding a problem which actually makes a correction over something which is dysfunctional. Where has the functional problem arisen from? Practice in terms of order sets up a trail, like a breadcrumb trail, that we can follow. And we can say, hang on, at some point along this trail, something, I've missed something. And we can retrace our steps and we can find uh, this thing here. It doesn't make sense in terms of what's gone before. And now maybe if I fix that, let's then see how that affects the rest of it. Because we can find more than one problem. And so practice is also then really like a process of elimination. But there's an order to the way that we that we go about that so that we're actually eliminating problems rather than creating more of them. So the order is like a pathway? It's a pathway. There's an ascending, there's a developmental progression, an ascending progression, and so therefore also that's, we can retrace our steps backwards. So it's ascending or it's descending. And why you'd go backwards to try and figure out which crumbs were missing on your pathway? As a problem-solving exercise. Something has gone wrong here. Where has the problem started okay, from? Okay, so instead of leaping from one point to another, you'd go, okay, there's a problem, let me step back, step, 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 and find the origination of the problem. Perceptually, which is also why it needs to be a perceptual process rather than a conceptual process. The conceptual process is inclined to leap. So the mind will leap and come up with an idea about it, whereas we have to quieten down our minds and listen to our bodies instead. Yes, brain, brain leaps, part of the, the use of, of a brain is its conceptual facility. So, and that really is a, a process of aggregation into lumps. And so then we leap from one lump to another. And in a very, very short period of time, we've lost our trail. The perceptual process, the question of sequencing is a step-by-step -step process. It starts from a particular place and it develops progressively. What's really important in that process is our care and our thoroughness rather than facility. Do you think it's important to have a meditation practice to be able to watch your mind closely enough to be able to apply it in an asana practice? I think an asana practice is a meditative process. I don't see that there's any other way about going, of going about it. So I think it's a meditative process. I think it's also a meditative training. The only thing is we have to present ourselves to the asana in such a way that it can train us. But I think really it's just as much a meditative process as any other process is a meditative process. Well, I have a, you know, I had a, um, a strong history of insight meditation practice right from my very earliest yoga days. You know, I have no doubt that there's a, an influence and, and just in terms of the way that I might think about things. And of course, I might, from that practice, 
think about things in terms of cause and effect. And the theory of dependent origination, is that, does that inform? Absolutely. A dependent origination, an observation rather than a theory, um, is built into uh, Satipatthana Vipassana, which is that tradition. But or also, for that matter, into uh, the teachings of the Buddha. But that's really something that can be observed. Everyone can observe that for themselves. That, that really is just around the tracking of the way phenomena arise in relation to each other. So is that similar to the pathway of the breadcrumbs? Yes. And tracing it back to the beginning? I think really the questions around conviction, around knowing, around clarity, around the vetting of what we're doing, we're doing for its validity. I think they're all built into methodology. But how can you know if you've got if your methodology is sound or not? In the same way that you know that whether your handstand, for example, is sound. Because if you don't have support, if your action isn't giving you support, or if your action is actually dissipating, and instead of getting support, you're getting collapsing, that tells you immediately that your your methodology is not functioning. So it's dysfunctional. And but it's also true that people can be in a handstand that that other people might look at and think it's dysfunctional, but they think that it's fine. Well, one of the things that we're, we're grappling with in practice is our capacity for self-deception. And really what's going on there is that the, the, the relationship is not with the doing, the relationship is with the thinking around the doing. Unfortunately, Mr. Asmussen would say uh, that you know, the doing is in the leg, not in the brain. But the, the point is that a practice should be functional. And if... if um, if, we, if it is falling, if it's collapsing, it's clearly not functional. And we can know that for ourselves. If, we, if, our, if our presentation is accurate, if it's in the right place, we're going to know that immediately for ourselves. And what do you think will happen to the Iyengar community now that Mr Iyengar has died? I have no real idea. And I don't know that I have the, the luxury of speculation. I feel there's work to be done and so from my point of view the question is what is the work that needs to get done and how can I go about doing it? In your role in the association as well as your role as a teacher? Or? Well they're all they're all mixed in together. I'm, I'm a practitioner. How does it affect my practice? I still have work to do in my practice. As a teacher I have work to do as a teacher. As a training teacher I have work to do as somebody who is on some level uh, an experienced Iyengar teacher, there are responsibilities that go with that. My job is to meet those responsibilities as directly and as, as effectively as I can. Um, I can't be doing that worrying about what's going to happen here and what's going to happen there. Rather, I think it's part of practice is you turn your attention to what needs to get done. If you're taking your hands to the floor for handstand, that's where your attention needs to go. If you're teaching, that's where your attention needs to go. So it's it's very much around the work that has to get done. Thank you. I think that's a great place to finish. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Linda. The Yoga Nook podcast is sponsored by iyogaprops.com.au where you can get quality props and an excellent collection of Iyengar yoga books. They have very fast delivery. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and uh, like and subscribe. And then my next guest will be Father Joe Pereira. See you then. Bye.